I hope you have your Bibles with you today and can join me as we travel yet again through the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 9 specifically. And the sermon that I have entitled, if I had to put a title to it, would be The Rock of Righteousness. The Rock of Righteousness. It is in this ever-inflated, self-centered world that we need a rock, a foundation. But it is also a constant reminder for the child of Christ is that the righteousness and self-righteousness is something that we must evaluate momentarily in our lives and sometimes even daily. What I specifically mean by this is the righteousness that we possess is not of ourselves, but it is in and through the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were to pick up your Bible, if you were to navigate through your Bible from Genesis to the book of the Revelation in the canon of Scripture, if you were to navigate through Scripture itself, you get, you get this hint, you get this idea, you get this truth. That humanity cannot bring anything to the table in terms of morality, purity, and righteousness. This is a story that is threaded through all of God's word. And as I look at this lost and helpless and broken and unraveling world, I've had this thought. That it would do the world well to receive a shot of humility. But then I also think that it would do the church well to receive a shot of humility from time to time. I remember hearing this guy um, who, a best-selling author, I guess you could say, and I remember him saying, you know what, I think I'm going to write a book on humility. Then he goes on to say, well, you know what, I think it will be a bestseller. It's almost like saying, I am absolutely the best at being humble. Just want y'all to know that. So I think every now and then we need a shot of humility. Every prideful, every self-centered idea we have. And I think about our culture specifically. Because our culture has gone the the way of this rogue mercenary or the mantra that says, every man for himself and I am above all. Me, myself, and I. And over the years, humankind has constructed what I consider to be, even in the church, a man-centered gospel. And you might say to yourself, that sounds like an oxymoron, pastor, and yet it is because man-centered gospel is not a gospel at all. Amen? So I will invite you with Bibles in hand. If you don't have your Bible with you today, there should be one in your pew or on the overhead. And I'll invite you to stand with me as we read God's holy, infallible word that speaks words of truth to us today. Stand, if you will. I'm going to be looking at Deuteronomy 9. I'm going to be looking at the entirety of the chapter, but I really wanted to focus in on these first Five verses in in the chapter. So let's begin in verse 1 with this uh, word for hear Shema, hear O Israel. Verse 1. 
You are to cross over the Jordan today and to go in and to, and to dispossess nations that are greater and mightier than you. Cities that are great and fortified up to the heaven. A, a, a people who is great and tall, the, the sons of Anakim, who, who you know, of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them from before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Are you going in to possess the land? But because of the wickedness of these nations and the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this word. Father, I pray you will speak to us today. If we have any inclination of our own self-righteousness today, I pray that before the end of these words that are uttered today, we will lay them at the foot of the cross and know that the rock of our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was, I was, as I was thinking through these verses... As I was thinking through these verses, there you go. Can you hear me better? Okay. As I was thinking through these verses, one of the most treasured doctrines in the Christian faith is, is that of justification by, by faith alone. We know that we come to Christ uh, through this justification and not of our own righteousness. We can say it's in in faith alone, through Christ alone, through the word of God alone, through the glory of, of God. It is not of our works. And I think of Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that, that said it is, it is by grace that we have been saved. It is, it is not of works. We have no reason, no criteria to boast at all. One of the most treasured and held to doctrines in our faith is that of justification by faith alone. It was Martin Luther, the... Reformer, the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, he had this to say of righteousness in Jesus and justification by faith alone. Martin Luther said, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. All this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here, Martin Luther said, I felt that I was altogether born again. And at the very gates of paradise opened before me. This was this light bulb moment, this eureka moment for Martin Luther, the spurning on of the 
of the Protestant and the Reformation, if you will. Not a new idea by any means, just a truth that had been veiled by darkness. In fact, one of the mantras of the, of the, uh, the Reformation was, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. This rediscovering of this truth, justification, our justification, righteousness, is not in the things that we do with our hands. It doesn't, it is, it doesn't, um, it doesn't amount to uh, the things that we put in the offering plate or at that time it would be for indulgences. It, 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 is, not the, it, is, it is not the sacraments that we keep that infuse us with grace, grace or righteousness. It is by the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't how good I am to my neighbor that will give me eternal life. It is through the work of Christ and Christ alone. And so this truth that had been, that a light had been shed on that had been darkened for many, for many years is a treasure doctrine of our faith. Today's message is a reminder of the authority and the power of God, the Almighty, and the overall unending love and supply of His grace and mercy and righteousness, even when we don't deserve it, which is 100% of the time. 100% of the time. So let's look at the background. Deuteronomy 1, chapter 9, he says, Hear, O Israel, use this same word, Shema. Draw in close, listen. I've got something very important for, for you to hear. You're going to cross over Jordan, you're going to go in, and there's going to be this great people. They're going to have these fortified cities, these walls that were built up to look like they were built specifically for war, and, and they are built up for war. There's a great people there, these, these people of Anak, the sons of Anakim. Who at one time you'd already said these are giants. These are people of mighty stature. Remember you one time before disobeyed God. And you wandered 40 years in the wilderness. It's time. It's time for redemption. It's time for you to be redeemed in this, in this matter. You one time said who can stand before the sons of Anak? I want you to know today that the one who goes over before you is a consuming fire. He will judge the nations because of wickedness and, and sin. He will destroy and subdue them before you. He will drive them out. And the Lord has promised. He'd given this covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you will see this fulfillment if you will obey the voice and the commands of God. The Lord relays this to the people through the avenue of Moses, the messenger, the prophet, the deliverer, in a sense. And this truth that I'm going to share with you in two parts transcends time itself. It is almost like one of those universal truths that is written in the heavens, but they are universal because God has placed them there. Because God has supplied this universal truth. And so as I read from verse 4 on, I get this picture of nothing in my hands I bring to God. Nothing in my hands I bring. I can't bring my own reputation. I can't bring how good I was this past week. I can't bring the good works that I've done. Nothing. Nothing I bring. It, it is your will and your sovereignty, God. I, I, offer, I offer nothing. Moses reminds them. He says, don't say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, after he has driven them away, don't say it is because of my righteousness. That's why 
That's why God drove them out. Don't say that it is because of your righteousness that you possess the land. It is because of their wickedness that God is driving them out. Not not because you have some, some type of merit. It's not just because you're a Hebrew. Don't think it is because of you that the Lord is driving out the nations out from before them. And when we really think about that, sometimes we often get like this too. Whether or not we realize that or not, or we're consciously thinking about it, Let's think about it like this. When when someone says something to you and you get upset over it and it angers you, do you ever think something like this? Don't you know that I'm a Christian? Somebody cuts you off in traffic or almost runs you off the road. Don't you know who you're messing with? Don't you know I'm a child of God? I wish they would run off the road. I wish they would get a ticket and we would pull up next to them. I know if you pull up next to them, saw that person get the ticket, we would laugh point. We would say, there you go, there's your payback. You reap what you sow. Or God will put them in their place. We often might think this thought, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, when we really don't understand what that really means. I do not want to see anyone have the vengeance of God poured out upon them because it is not a pretty sight. Would we rather have vengeance or restoration? Would you rather have the vengeance of the Lord or a person come to know God as, as Savior? Or we somehow think, you know, just because a person has had a hard light, lot in life and they've done us wrong, that now they're going through hardship. See, you shouldn't have treated me that way. And we would say, well, that's karma for you. With karma is this false idea of you reap what you sow. We would say, you get what you deserve. We would say in our, in our faith, you have reaped what you have sown. And it's not a pretty sight when someone reaps consequences for sin in their life. It is not a pretty thing. It is not something that we should joke about. The world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. Worship today is not about Larry Stevens. It's not about, worship today is not about you. It is about the King of Kings. Will somebody be brave enough to say amen? But in today's colloquial language, we would say, well, get over yourself. You know how many times I have to say that to myself? Get over yourself. I'll, I'll never forget. I, I remember hearing, I remember hearing a, a pastor tell this tale one time. He said he was preaching um, through a book of the Bible. And he was beginning to, to press through the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, uh, there was a, a person there uh, in, the, in the congregation that accused the pastor of, of singling out him during the preaching. Okay, on the way out the doors, he looked at another person on the way out. He said, can you believe that? He was preaching about me today. He said, can you believe that? I can't believe that preacher was talking about me today. And, and he thought so much that whoever, you know, the, the pastor was just singling him out and put a bullseye on his back and used him in the sermon. This pe- preacher got wind of it and addressed the fellow. And with as much admonition as he could muster and doing so out of love, he looked this fellow in the eye and said, Don't flatter yourself. And I can hear the same undertone from Moses. God's word speak to us. Yes, it does. Do we learn and grow from God's word? Yes, but it is about him. 
So Moses says, I want you to hear the undertone from Moses. He says, don't flatter yourself. Think about it as divine eternal justice dished out on the wicked people who are in front of you. There is nothing that you possess in character, in your nature, in your demeanor, the things that you have possession-wise, there's nothing in your character that would ever move God to act on your behalf unless, I like this clarifier here, unless it is the righteousness of Jesus. So Moses stresses the point further. He says it's not because of your righteousness or up your uprightness of heart. He's not denying that there are some there who could be categorized as upright. It's not because of that. It's because the wickedness of these nations, God is driving them out. And he wants you to remember this covenant that he made with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that as you look over the stars, so will your generation be. The sands of the sea, there your generation will be. They'll be numerous. And out of that, numerous people will rise a Messiah. Salvation or deliverance is not for, from their peripheral righteousness before men or their apparent submission to the law nor their inward authenticity of their heart it wasn't even based on good intentions they meant well it's because of their wickedness that that had been around long enough and God was simply tired of it it's not some puzzle it's not an enigma do you believe that God wants you to know this you believe God wants you to know his word? It's not hidden. It's not some esoteric puzzle. It is not some enigma. It's not an omega code. And by the way, there is no hidden code in the Bible. God wants you to know his word. As simple as that understanding is, the first word in verse 6 is what? What is the first word? Put it up there, Tim. No. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess it because of your righteousness. I want you to know it's not because of you. It's because of me. And then the last disclaimer at the very end was I say, for you are a stubborn people. Sometimes the Bible used stiff-necked people. Now, us Reformed guys who've been saying this for a long time, that the depravity of man is a serious issue. What do I mean by depravity? I mean that the the human soul or spirit, if you will, is so deprived that it cannot come to God unless God does a work. I can't move towards God unless God does a work in calling me to himself. We have been saying this for a while that total depravity is the real issue with the soul of man. Sin keeps us from understanding what God is saying. It has distorted the way that we think about spiritual things. In fact... We are walking, before Christ, we were walking around, we were dead men walking. We weren't sin sick. We weren't sin sick. We weren't just sick because of sin. We were dead, as Paul says, in our trespasses and sins. I quote my brother in the faith who has now gone on to be with the Lord Jesus, Dr. R.C. Sproul, who described total depravity in this way. R.C. said, depravity, it means that the fall of man was so serious that it affects the whole person. 
It affects the whole person. The fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies. He says that's why we become ill. That's why we die. It affects our minds. It affects our thinking. We still have the capacity to think. But the Bible says that the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will, according to the New Testament, is now in bondage. We are enslaved to the evil impulses and the desires of our heart. The body, the mind, the will, the spirit, indeed, the whole person has been infected by the power of sin. And unless the Lord Jesus breaks that curse, you will forever be lost. You might say, as God says, you are stubborn people, and unless he does a work, all will be lost in their stubbornness and their lostness. But I have a reminder in Romans 5, 20 and 21. This should be occasion for the child of God to rejoice and say hallelujah. Romans 5, 21, speaking about the law, speaking about trespass, speak, speaking about sin. Romans 5 and 20 says, now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where sin abound, grace abound all the more. And then someone might say in the congregation, so Moses anticipated this response. Moses, are we really that stubborn? Church, are we really that stubborn sometimes? It's almost as if Moses is anticipating, well, we're really not that bad. We're really not that stiff-necked, are we? In verse 7, he says, remember, just in case you forgot, how you provoked the Lord God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. Even now, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even in Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. The Lord was so angry with you, he was ready to wipe you out. He was ready to destroy you. So Moses, being the intercessor that he was, he went up to the mountain, uh, received the stones and the tablets of the covenant that the Lord God had made. And he says he remained there for 40 days and 40 nights. He says, I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me these two tablets of stone written by his own finger. And on them were the words that the Lord had spoken with me on the mountain out of the midst of fire on the day of the assembly. This is the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. The end of the 40 day, Moses came back down the mountain. As he was coming back down the mountain, there was this calamity. In fact, the Lord said in verse 12, go down. Quickly from here, your people whom you have brought out of Egypt, they have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. They have made themselves a golden calf. And they have worshipped that golden calf instead of the one true God. I can't imagine the rumbling and the thunderings and the lightnings and the rumbling on the mountain just, just above and yet... And they have lost sight of, of that, not only where God has brought them from, and they begin to worship this image. So yeah, in case you forgot, you're a stubborn people. It reminds them, in more or less words, 
It has always been me, myself, the I am, who have brought you here. It is Yahweh who brought you here. As great of a man that Moses was, he had his flaws. He sinned, as we know. It was still the work of the Lord to grant deliverance. Now Moses was forced into the cleft of the rock. We know the story on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. Moses intercedes, hey, I want to behold your glory. And God permits him to see just a little bit. He hides him in the cliff of the rock. Hides him in, into the rock to hide him from the visible glory of God as he passed by. If he was in the full presence of the glory of God, he would be obliterated. He would be annihilated. He could not stand in the presence of God with his flesh. He would be, he'd be wiped off the face of the earth in a vapor. But God gave him grace. He hides him in the cleft of the rock. And then he says, you need to get down there. These people, these people have turned against me. They are already chasing another idol. They, they fashioned this golden calf because deep down they figured out that they can do it better. Or by fashioning this God, he, they, can, they can dance around the fire. They can do all types of different ceremonial rituals that will bend this God to their will. Maybe we can get this golden calf to do what we want to do. Pride, self-righteousness. As soon as they were in the wilderness, they provoked the Lord. They're complaining for water. And they had only been in the wilderness for three days. Three days. And they were complaining, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. They cried out for bread in the, in the wilderness of, of sin. I, I found that quite ironic that that wilderness is named sin. Again, the, the reminder for us here is that we have access to the Father through the work of the Son. Jesus even said himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me, he said. Nothing in my hands do I bring. Nothing in my hands can I offer God. That he would grant me eternal life. It is only through the work of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. But it is only to the cross that I cling. In verse 13. Furthermore he said. The Lord said to me. I have seen this people. And behold it is a stubborn people. A stiff necked people. Now, now you would think that the Lord is, is talking about. Some of the churches in modern day America today. Somehow the Lord has gotten a hold of the minutes on business meetings across American churches today, you would think. By the way, the Lord don't need to look at our books, he knows. You would think that somehow he was reviewing some of the business meetings that we hear about in churches across America. I, I just recently had a meeting with a group of pastors sat down together and they were talking about how much of a division it has been that it is hot or cold in the sanctuary for time of worship. Somebody wants a hot, somebody wants a cold. And how much of a division that has caused. And I began to think of myself, what do people do who are gathered on dirt floors? Where they put their Bible on their dirt floor and as they lay down, dust rises up before them. But there's no heating, there's no air conditioning, there's no seating. And yet they worship the Lord. We got some, we got some things to learn about people. They are unwilling to commit to the work of the Lord 
and are so preference-driven that the Great Commission becomes a cloudy disillusion to them. They don't see it. What is more important? How comfortable and cushiony your pew is? Or the air? Or that people are dying every day and going to hell? And we have a gospel to proclaim that could save them. But in the end, we want what we want, don't we? We want to be comfortable. We want to dig our heels in. And the only thing that will move us is an act of God. I think of the song that we sing, I shall not be moved. But I sing that in a negative light. Because we get on a hold of something and we dig our heels in and we're so stubborn that we say, I will not be moved. But we know the character of God is loving and long-suffering. He's merciful. I want you to listen to these words. This is the Lord reiterating here. Leave me alone that I might destroy them. I will blot their name out. I will make you a nation. I'll make, a, I'll make you, Moses, a, a mightier nation. Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the commandments. The level of this people's idolatry and wickedness provoked the Lord to anger. So Moses being the intercessor, being the deliverer that he is portrayed to be, he steps in on behalf of his people. Moses loved his people. There's no doubt about that. He is willing to step into the presence of the holiness of God, who at any moment, at any moment, could judge and be right in his judge. In his judgment. He'd be just eternally. He steps in on behalf of his people. God did judge those people. A line was drawn in the sand. There were people who were going to follow Moses and Aaron and follow the Lord God. So he did judge the people. Don't misunderstand that. There's always a judgment for sin. But he also showed mercy by not wiping the whole lot away and raising up another people. The Bible says in verse 15, I turned and I came down from the mountain. The mountain was burning with fire. I had a two tablets, the covenant, the Ten Commandments were in hand. And I look and behold, you had sinned against the Lord. You made yourself a golden calf. And I'm thinking to myself, why did he spend 40 days up there to receive these tablets? If you're going to come down and man is going to suddenly be turned against the one who brought them out of bondage. He says, you have turned aside quickly after the way the Lord has commanded you. You are stubborn and a stiff-necked people. What a sad, sad commentary on the state of human affairs. It is not just, not just contained in the Torah, but us today. The heart of man will quickly turn from God who delivered them by his mighty hand. They crossed the Red Sea on dusty ground. They escaped the bondage of a heavy taskmaster in Egypt. And it is amazing that you have turned aside so quickly from the way of the Lord. But you know that that truth is still potent today. That unless you are near to Jesus, unless you are near to him, Unless you are in his word, unless you are in fellowship with other believers, unless you are praying together, you will stray as well. Now, I am not speaking of a person falling out of God's grace. I'm not talking about losing salvation. I believe if you're in Christ, you will not lose salvation. But you will turn to your own selfish desires. 
And this is such a historical offense to God that even Stephen echoed it in his appearance before the high priest in Acts chapter 7 and verse 40. It's ingrained in their history as an offense so offensive to God that it is etched in their history. In case you forget, you had the golden calf. Moses goes on, he says, I took the two tablets and I threw them out of my hand. He was so angry and broke them before your eyes. And, I, and then he said, I laid prostrate before you 40 days and 40 nights. I didn't eat bread, I didn't drink. Why? Because of all the sin that you had committed. In doing what was evil in the sight of God to provoke him to anger. Moses and his people were now at the total mercy, the wrath of God. But I want you to notice Moses and his position. Where is Moses? He is flat on his face before God. And in, in this instance, Moses, the mighty deliverer, the, even the mighty warrior, the mighty intercessor, boldly falls before God. And his position on the ground in front of God matches the position of his heart. He says, I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure of the Lord that bore against you. And so he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me as he interceded. I'm thankful for people who intercede for the brothers and sisters. I'm glad we have people who are intercessors, who, who pray often. Moses was a person who loved. He loved his people, but he loved the Lord more. Think about it like this. Even though Moses saw the glory of the Lord and how utterly terrifying it could be that at any moment he could obliterate him by his, just, by, his just, by his glory, he still pleaded. Moses, the mediator, knew the holy love and character of God Almighty was merciful. The Lord was so angry with Aaron. People ask this question, well, what happened to Aaron? Why wasn't Aaron judged like the rest of the people? Maybe it had something to do with Moses interceding on behalf of his brother. The Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took this sinful thing, this golden calf that you had made, and burned it with fire, crushing it, grinding it very small until it was fine dust. I threw it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. There's no other way around this. Moses was an intercessor for his people. I mean, the thing is, Moses meant business too. Maybe that's what we need, to make business with God. Not get caught up with the cares and concerns of this wish-washy world that we live in. And, and here's what I mean. Moses ground the calf to powder, strewn it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Moses was, was a bad man. Moses was tough. And then interceded on behalf of Aaron and ordered the sons of Levi to slay every one of the guilty. Moses meant business. And only after this did they fall before the Lord. Verse 22 through the rest of the, ver uh, the, rest of the chapter. He says, you had provoked the Lord to wrath. God had sent you into the land to go and to take possession of the land. You remember that? And you rebelled against the Lord there. You wouldn't go in to possess the land that God had given to you. You believed the report of those, the bad report over, over the covenant that he had given to you. 
You had been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I laid prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord, oh Lord God, do not destroy your people. Do not destroy your heritage. What are the people going to think? You gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't, don't please, don't regard their stubbornness and their sin. The nations around you is going to say that you're going to have this reputation. The Lord was not even able to bring them out of the land that he promised because he hated them. He brought them out here to have death in the wilderness. This is what the nation is going to say, Lord. They're your people, your heritage. You've brought about this far by your outstretched arm. So what is Moses pleading to? He's, he's pleading to the power and majesty of God. He's also pleading for the mercy of God. He's pleading for God to show mercy. Lord, you have every right to extinguish this stubborn lot of people. God, from the pulpit this morning, as an expositor of your word, you have every right to extinguish me from the face of this earth. You have every right to judge. But God, I know that you are long-suffering. You are full of mercy. You did not call them out of bondage just to exterminate because of sin and wickedness. And had it not been for the grace of God, we never would have had the chance to inherit eternal life. We didn't deserve it. We can't keep it in our own strength. So that's why I say only to the cross we cling. You have heard these words from this pulpit many times. That our salvation is not by works, it is not by merit, but it is by Christ. See, Moses reminds this new generation of the people who are crossing Jordan to a promised land. It is not by your own hand. Again, um, again, it's not about you. It's not about your own merit. Don't flatter yourself. It's because of God's mercy and grace. John Calvin, another reformer, wrote these words against what we would call works-based salvation. And I believe they are worth sharing. He said... No work of man can possibly be accepted without expiation, meaning the lifting of sin, the eradication of sin. Uh, we must hold that all works done before faith, whatever splendor of righteousness, whatever facade of righteousness that they may carry, whatever this splendor of righteousness may appear in them, were nothing but mere sin, being defiled by the very root that's why the Bible says that none can do, that none are righteous, none are good, no, not one. He says, you are offensive to the Lord, whom nothing can please without inward purity of the heart. Without the Lord Jesus, any work that you do outside of the name of Jesus, let's say you do a good work. And you might say, well, God will truly bless me because of this. When the righteousness of Christ does not abide in you, it is an offense to a holy God. Let's pray together. Let's do that.